my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and today we're talking about Danny DeVito, the director. Before we start, can I ask, have you seen him drunk on The View? Of course I have, multiple times. Of course you have. Where he's doing the press circuit for Deck the Halls. Which is probably one of the last Danny DeVito starring vehicles, right? Mm -hmm. And he gets very active, I guess, on the show. Didn't he say he slept in the Lincoln bedroom with his wife and uh, we made use of every surface? (laughs) And I think he says that he got drunk with George Clooney the night before, which is why (laughs) he's hammered on the show. But listen, we're not here to talk about his acting, which I love. I love Danny DeVito as an actor. uh, Or his talk show appearances, which I also love. Or his politics which, which are, are good good, good. Yeah. he was a he was a big bernie guy the last election right mm-hmm. and also before we started recording i said that i seen like post about him going to socialist authors and like asking them questions and being very active in that kind of stuff uh and also he is the author of the famous antonin scalia retire bitch tweet oh which, really yeah are you familiar with that tweet uh vaguely i mean he created a meme format with that anson and scalia retire bitch oh I think it was man 10 years ago that he posted that well, what a legend yeah. but we're here to talk about a i guess slice of his career that doesn't get mentioned that much his work as a director and why are we talking about danny devito director i think of all the subjects that his films are kind of visually inventive in a way you don't see very often in those types of comedies when you watch a director like tim Tim Burton or Terry Gilliam. They have very distinct visual styles, but they are outliners when you usually discuss comedies and or someone like Edgar Wright, for example. But then Danny DeVito, like if you watch his films and you can almost always go, oh, that's a Danny DeVito film. Right. And not just visually and his love of kind of like wide angle lenses or goofy transitions, but also his subject matter, where it's very consistent through almost all of the motion pictures that he's directed. Well, yeah, it's interesting that Danny DeVito has this side career making black comedies, you know, quote-unquote outrageous comedies. But in the 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 studio studio system, system. yeah. Yeah. The fact that, like, any other filmmaker that wasn't a big star would probably be making these films to play, like, at Sundance and get very quiet distributions. Right. He's not... He doesn't have a career as a comedy director. He's not Elaine May. No, he's also not Sean Levy. Mm-mm. You know, yeah. he's somewhere in between. And so Danny DeVito as a director, he started early on. He made a film called The Ratings Game, which I have not seen. He but... also did some episodes of Amazing Stories, mm-hmm. I think. Oh, it should be noted as well that like Danny DeVito, just a quick background, started off Broadway, was a character actor. And One stuff flew like... over the cuckoo's nest. And then blew up thanks to Taxi. And I heard a funny story about Taxi when he went into audition. They wanted, you know, a a tough talking New York sort of guy. And apparently when he went into audition for James L. Brooks and a team of James L. Brooks's lackeys, he looked at the script, he threw it down. He said, who wrote this shit? (laughs) Apparently the whole room burst out laughing. They loved him immediately. Then when he auditioned, he could do no wrong. And the rest was history. Now. Are you a fan of Danny DeVito? Because he's one of those actors that even as a kid in the 90s, you knew who he was. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about this. Have I ever sought out a movie because Danny DeVito is in it? Or did you just go, oh, he's in this. I'm happy. Yeah, the latter. I have never sought out a movie for Danny DeVito, but I've always been happy to see him. I mean, Batman Returns, your favorite movie of all time. Danny DeVito, very present in that film. Can I just say his performance in that movie is magnificent. Oscar worthy. Yeah. I mean, he's... Probably, honestly, better than Jack in the first one. I would agree. Can I say? Mostly because Jack is doing Jack stuff. Danny DeVito is being a weird little freak. He's creating a whole character that is both 
well, I mean, it's monstrous, it's funny, and it's and it's touching. I mean, he was in the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ivan Reitman circle for a while, like Twins and Junior. Uh, Horrifying films I watched many a time <laughs> as a child. I mean, there's something about him as an actor that's just sort of innately like Magnetic. Yeah. it's a, He's one of those actors that, like, I don't think he can give a bad performance because yeah. he's so present and himself and so everything that he does comfortable on screen and anyone who's seen it's always sunny in philadelphia which danny devito has played frank reynolds on that show for hundreds of episodes at this point and he is the highlight mm-hmm. just again almost a penguin like mania every time he performs there's a meme out there speaking of danny devito memes of an episode where they think that they're getting a virus and it ends with him in his underwear completely shaved no eyebrows covered in i think it's hand gel crawling over the ground going i want to be pure like a horror thing and it's like oh that is danny devito doing what he does best but as a director so he had those early sort of minor credits Mm -hmm. and then he was offered by billy crystal a role in the movie Throw Mama from a Train from 1988. And he said, I'll do it if I can direct it. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Billy Crystal and his associates were very enthusiastic about that. And that began his directorial career. So I'll say right from the get-go that while I was watching Throw Mama from the Train, all I could think about is, man, Billy Crystal was a star for a long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, we are far away from the Billy Crystal, like, everybody loves him. Billy Crystal was just got a Kennedy Center honor. Wow. He was up there in the balcony next to Joe Biden getting his medal. You and know? you wonder, like, people that are much younger than us are probably like, who's that? When I see, yeah, when I see Billy Crystal getting a Kennedy Center honor, I have one of those feelings of, like, what society am I in? I've never felt more alienated. You know, you see the war in Gaza and then you see Billy Crystal next to Joe Biden getting <laughs> yeah. getting like the lifetime achievement honor and you think I want to. I want a divorce from this society. Mm-hmm. But we're, you're you're, <laughs> but hey, you're in a marriage. You listen, can't get out. We got to talk about throw mama well, from the train. Hey, he's Billy Crystal's fine in this movie. He is much more unlikable than I thought he would be, which I I like. I actually really liked. And this is kind of the thin line Danny DeVito walks in all of his films is that his protagonists are usually douchebags, but he has to work through the reality he's making a studio film i feel like at this point it is time to unveil my feelings about danny devito as a director Mm -hmm. having immersed myself in this filmography coming with interest and curiosity and agreeing that theoretically this is interesting yeah it's interesting that he's had this career Mm. i don't love him as a director Mm -hmm. i think it's it's what he's trying to do it's off pretty consistently, well, except for Matilda. What about, you didn't think that War of the Roses felt off? I like War of the Roses. I like, I like War of the Roses. Yes. I like War of the Roses. And uh, I don't love it, but I like it. Okay. I I really like War of the Roses. I will say Throw Mama from the Train does feel off. It feels kind of mushy. It doesn't really have a strong structure to take you through it. It feels compromised to mm, me more yes, than anything. I agree. I think it's a great idea, and I don't think it follows through. I feel that Billy Crystal, the star of the picture was probably like i won't let myself get that dark making this film so the premise of the movie is that billy crystal is a failing writer who has writer's block who's also a writing teacher Mm -hmm. and has many hopeless students in his class one of whom is danny devito who is a pitiful little mama's boy his mother is played brilliantly by ann ramsey oh so good who of course many will know for her role in the goonies she was an older actress who in real life had had part of her tongue removed and so so talk kind of like this and has 
enormous presence, but also... Wasn't she Academy nominated for this film? Deservedly so, I, <laughs> I think. Rules. She is, has a sort of gargoyle-like presence in this movie, but also, you know, plays it very funny. Mm-hmm. And the, the dynamic between her and Danny DeVito on screen is very funny. I mean, the plot kicks into action when DeVito sees the Hitchcock movie Strangers on a Train. Yeah, and he had spoken to his writing teacher, played by Billy Crystal, that like, what makes a perfect murder? And it's like, oh, it's two people that don't really know each other murder the other person's target, and that way, they'll get off scot-free. So much like in Strangers on a Train, he thinks he's made a deal with Billy Crystal. I'll kill your hated ex-wife and you kill my hated mother. And it seems yes. that he's killed Billy He's gone through on it and killed billy crystal's ex-wife and if crystal doesn't follow through on this he'll call the police on him there's a weird lack of tension once the plot kicks in in that like billy crystal feels too free to do what he wants i feel like there's also the tension between the two of them isn't quite right like devito is is too nice he's too nice he's too lovable like there's a scene where he's like showing him like his coin collection Mm. and it's like oh this is the coin my dad gave me oh that feels like a note like we need to sympathize devito a little bit more yeah so for, for the whole movie it's, it's like the I, like if i were rewriting this movie and i'm brilliant mm. so of course the movie would be great if i rewrote it but if i were rewriting it, it it would be like he he presents initially as sort of nice and sweet but then as the movie goes on he becomes more Meaner, and more yeah. sour like clifford or something or you could have billy crystal kind of be like oh wow you killed my wife all right i'll kill your mother no problem i hate her or something like or, that yeah or like he he's initially it's almost like martin landau and crimes and misdemeanors where it's like initially it's like no this is a horrible idea i'll never do it and then then, i kind of like it yeah as it goes on yeah and then in the last act i think it just fully cops out oh completely caught everyone has a happy ending yeah and the classic not the first time you will see it in a danny devito film that ends with the characters writing a book about the situation that happened to them yeah i will say that you know I, when I think of Danny DeVito, think of his visual style. It's slightly present here, but I think Barry Sonnefeld, who shot this movie, gave DeVito the inspiration that he then went on and did himself. You're absolutely right. There is something... I initially thought of DeVito's style as kind of like diet Tim Burton, Mm -hmm. which is Barry Sonnenfeld. Yes. (laughs) I don't think Barry Sonnenfeld ever shot a Tim Burton film, but... But you know. If people don't know, he shot Raising Arizona. There you go. If you've seen that movie, you know what that style is. Three o'clock high. And and Sonnenfeld's own directorial movies, like Men Men in in Black. Black. Yeah, they have that kind of visual energy to them. While DeVito, I feel there's a little bit more darkness to it, especially in his next feature film, War of the Roses. Yeah, so War of the Roses, is, is is a good movie mm-hmm. and one of the reasons i like it is because michael douglas and kathleen turner are like strong dramatic actors who i think bring every ounce of their talent to and it and it's based on a novel but i think the movie as well does a good balancing act of like they're both wrong in their own way but you can see people taking either side as the film plays out right so it's very well written quite well played where it's this couple who obviously are in love they get married you see the marriage sour and much of the second half of the movie is them trying to divide their assets specifically this enormous house who gets to live in this house and becoming increasingly more psychotic to each other mostly because michael douglas is a man's man who focuses on his job and nothing else and that when finally his wife wants to divorce because she feels no connection to him he will not give up the house 
Now, if if I don't quite put this movie in classic status, mm. it's because I do think there's something about DeVito's style that's a little heavy-handed. Oh, absolutely in this film. Everything is so stylized from, like, the wraparound story of DeVito telling it, and you yeah. see, like, the Wizard of Oz style. But I think... And the d- music, too, which, I, like, smothers the film. I think that's all done because of how dark the film is. Mm-hmm. So, like, you have this kind of sheen of unreality, but then you have something that at the center is very miserable. Like Michael Douglas gets punched by his wife in the face in the film. Right. And like, it does do some cop outs. There's a dog death that like gets taken away, which feels like something that was done like at the last minute to, you know, Oh, I don't want anybody. Cause killing a dog is like, that's the worst thing you can do in a movie. Well, I do know that the end of the movie was pretty gutsy. Yes, I agree. And is honestly like the only ending of a Danny DeVito movie. That feels like it ends correctly. Yes. And I think that exists because DeVito had had success with Throw Mama from the Train and James L. Brooks was producing War of the Roses. So like, and you've got two big stars in it. Mm-hmm. too. So like they're being able to push that for and War of the Roses was a huge hit as well. Yeah. Yeah. And is it one that gets mentioned very often, though? Like anymore? Yeah. I started playing it and my dad was in the room and he went, oh, man, I know this movie. Oh, what a depressing film. <laughs> like, that's funny. I don't find it depressing at all. No, I, mean, I think it's great. I mean, it is. It is very fun. Well, you haven't been through a divorce, Will. So <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe no. it's too real to people. No, I've, I've never had my heart broken <laughs> except for all those times. <laughs> yeah. And like the house that they live in this movie is basically I wonder, did Bo Welsh do the production design on this? Because yeah. it is stylized in that. Yeah. Style. Yeah. I, again, I appreciate the muscular filmmaking mm. here but i also think like the ingredients the proportions of them are just a little wonky there's some really great touches you wouldn't even notice if you weren't paying attention i posted a gift a while back of at one point kathleen turner who throughout the movie they say she's like acrobatic she does a cartwheel down the stairs mm-hmm. and if you go frame by frame you can see it's not actually stairs that they put like a piece of wood oh, that nice. they turned so it's like in the moment it looks real but like devito is very clearly creating a stylized image image to suggest something as opposed to you know trying to figure out to do it realistically which is 100 percent the style that he has in his films it's well written and carefully written in a way that certain of the other devito movies aren't i'm thinking specifically death to smoochie oh yeah which i i think we did a patreon episode we talked about it elsewhere but briefly you know war of the roses has this escalation to it whereas i feel like death to smoochie begins with the premise Mm -hmm. of like wouldn't it be funny if two barneys basically started swearing at each other and and it kind of doesn't really go from there you may not remember but what we took out from that movie was that it looks gorgeous and the style is super fun. We're also skipping over Hoffa as well, which we discussed on our Jack Nicholson episode. I haven't seen Hoffa all the way through. Yeah, I found it a little bit dramatically inert, but I was impressed at like what DeVito was trying to do in this story, like jumping through time and telling one of those like, you know, cradle to the grave style biographies, but by time shifting it through kind of visual transitions. It was interesting, even though I didn't think it quite worked. Yeah, I'll I'll watch the rest of it someday. With Death the Smoochie, I feel like one of the problems of it is the same across his filmography where like the premise is a very pg-13 idea of what's outrageous like it's like oh my god what if barney swore Mm -hmm. you know which is an idea that i myself i'm proud to say had in the second grade Mm -hmm. Uh, when you were like beating up barney dolls and calling him dumb and stuff like that (laughs) yeah yeah and and i i see that in a number of danny devito's movies where it's like isn't it outrageous Mm -hmm. this incredibly outrageous idea and it's like it's not that outrageous well i think the main issue is in that film and we talked about it on our patreon episode 
It's a little man called Robin Williams unleashing that picture. Okay, I, I, I may disagree on this because I kind of feel like Death of Smoochie is already not that great. Yeah, but, but, but you can hang on to Robin Williams? Robin Williams weirdly like brings so much to it that I that I <sighs> kind a lot of, of mustard. I respect it. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of respect it. It's like, God, he's going for it. I recall there's like one physical gag involving falling downstairs oh, that yeah. we very much enjoyed. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> but I think Death of Smoochie is again an example that like the majority of these DeVito films we're talking about is that they're running into, that was an absurd budgeted film Testa yeah. Smoochie and it was written by Adam Resnick of Get a Life fame and Cabin Boy of course the of director course. of and you could you know that that script was much darker and probably yeah. better than what ended up on screen. I say all this with affection because, I mean, Death to Smoochie, saying it's bad is like, you know, kicking a poor dog. Kicking uh, a poor Barney yeah, on the ground. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and like, obviously, it was obviously made with a, a lot of heart and a lot of passion. Mm -hmm. But I I didn't rewatch Matilda for this movie, but I actually think that's a movie where kind of... The style and the content match perfectly? Well, yeah, because, like, the outrageousness of yeah. it... Oh, well, first of all, some in some of his movies, he has trouble mixing the tones of like darkness and light, you know, sweetness and sourness. And in that movie, you've got Meryl Wilson in the middle of it, who's, who's giving a very real performance, very perfect anchor for the film. And then she's surrounded by I mean, there's the nice teacher as mm. well. And then she's surrounded by all these grotesques, yeah. including DeVito and Rhea Perlman. And in that movie, Danny DeVito gets so well the perspective of a child that when you're mm. that age, that's how you view the world, like exactly. wide angle lenses. Everyone is very threatening, and that whole story is wish fulfillment. Yes. So he's able to bring it with the style that he has, and that's why that movie works very well in a way that I don't think the remake does. The Netflix original, as we all remember, Matilda the Musical. Yeah, I caught a 10 minutes of that mm, during you're the like, holidays. That's enough for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, Not my Matilda, hashtag. Danny DeVito's Matilda, because he's working on a smallish scale and he is working with grotesques that center a very innocent young performance. Mm -hmm. It's one of the rare films of his that the central character is not one that it should be despised. The, yeah, that's right. Or not not one who's like morally compromised in some mm -hmm. ways because well we, we might as well mention Duplex. Mm -hmm. well, we both watch it, so uh, we're gonna talk about listen, it. Listen, folks, I wish I had another movie that I could praise here. Yeah. But unfortunately we're gonna talk about the worst one now. Mm -hmm. Duplex from the 2000. The one that ended his feature film yeah, career. 2003. I don't think he's made a feature since. The first film shot after 9-11. That I think. Well, that's what's said on IMDB. <laughs> yeah. The first New York production after 9-11. So the premise of this one is pretty easy to describe. Ben Stiller and Drew Barrymore are a yuppie couple, you know, young, looking to go to the next level in life, looking to own property. In New York, in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what are they? She's a graphic designer and he's a writer and they have enough money to buy a house in Brooklyn. I mean, I hope they hold on to it. That's that's all I'll say. Because uh, I mean, the, we're going to talk about the movie, Will. The, I got some unfortunate news to share with you. They buy a duplex, a, a beautiful, you know, huge, lot of space, but there's one catch. On the top floor, there is a little old lady who has rent control and can't get rid of her. She pays $88 a month mm -hmm. in rent and they can't get rid of her, but she is in her 80s now. So as Harvey Firestein, as the real estate mogul says, you know, the, the mm -hmm. odds are looking good. All right, I want to spoil Duplex right away because I want to work back from the end of the film, which when I started, I went, I hope this is not how it actually ends. And then it does, which is the little old lady basically tortures them until they leave because there's a scheme between Harvey Firestein, her, and a cop as well, a cab, and because he's a real police officer in the movie, yeah. to kind of like get people to come in, they take their money, and then they get out. 
that's not as interesting as two landlords being tortured by just a little old lady being a little old lady. Yes, which itself, honestly, is not that interesting, at least as it's presented here. Well, unless you presented the landlords, the young yuppies, as purely despicable people, so you would get enjoyment out of them being tortured, but that's not the movie that they made. It's a very tricky needle to thread. I mean, have you seen any of the new Nathan Fielder show, The Curse? No, I have not. Okay, so Fielder and Emma Stone in that are like, you know nice young liberals they are there and and they're they're trying to have an hgtv show talking about their flip flip land flip ranthropy or something okay. where it's like they flip houses but in a philanthropic way mm-hmm. and they're in this you know they're gentrifying basically this mexican neighborhood and they're they're nice liberals and they're incredibly cringe inducing mm. and a lot of the show is like misfortunes that fall on them and like that's a show that gets the tone absolutely perfect these characters are not irredeemable necessarily. They think they're doing well, but they are annoying and overbearing, overbearing and they're making the wrong decisions. And and they are selfish. Yeah. You know. I mean, you can make the argument that in Duplex, Ben Stiller and Drew Barrymore, they are selfish characters. Yeah. At first, when they start freaking out, it didn't feel like the old lady was doing that much stuff that mm. was bad. Mm. Like at one point, they like sneak into her house and she's like eating a sausage, gross, and you see Ben Stiller go like Ew! And it's like, she's in the privacy of her own home, man. Leave her alone. Here's the thing. We are all selfish characters. Yes. You and I are selfish characters. Mm-hmm. Like, if we had that granny on the third floor, we would also be annoyed with her. No, I think I'd be okay. I would, I would put I, my... Sorry, I'm, I would be annoyed. I would put my earphones on and I'd be all you're right. A, you're a perfect person. You're mm-hmm. the only one. Yeah. But, but me, I'm not. And so I don't need the movie to kind of hold my hand and say, but don't worry, they're likable too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's I want fine. to be annoying. That's fine. I see myself in the Nathan Fielder character and, and I don't need to be told that I'm a good person. <laughs> and this film, like, yeah, that humor thing is just miscalibrated. Well, I mean, it once you understand like what the movie is, mm. it doesn't have a lot of surprises. They're in a money pit of some kind. Yeah, yeah. But then, like, as the the problems escalate, yeah. it's kind of like, oh, all the things that happen, you, you think would happen, they happen. I think that once you hire an assassin to kill the person that lives above you, you are completely irredeemable. Well, that's that's the thing. And the movie doesn't... It, it redeems them. It doesn't have the courage to follow through. Now, you'll notice in the end credits are the names Harvey and Bob Weinstein. Yes. Producers with a very heavy hand. I believe Danny DeVito did have difficulty making this motion picture. So maybe we need to let him off the hook a little bit. Mm -hmm. I also think that this is a film where he was trying to play nice after the massive financial failure of Desta Smoochie. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, all right, all right, I can play. It's not going to be too visually, you know, extravagant or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I'll just make a simple comedy. That's not Envy. This is Duplex, not the other Ben Stiller <laughs> film about the disappearing poop directed by Barry Levinson that co-stars Jack Black. The other Ben Stiller flop that had a troubled production from this time. Yes. It had a troubled production? Envy, yeah, it was on the shelf for years. <laughs> wow, well, coming soon to a Patreon, I guess. <laughs> so, like a lot of directors who have directed so few films, it's a bummer that we can't be like, he went out, out on top. I mean, I look at this filmography and I wish there was more mm-hmm. because... War the Roses! Matilda! Because it is interesting. It is interesting what he's trying to do. But even in the failures, you can see Danny DeVito there. Absolutely. He did direct a short film a number of years ago that's very charming, won a bunch of awards, had none of that uh, visual razzle-dazzle. So maybe he has another one in him, but I don't, like, I love the idea of Danny DeVito as the kind of fabulous when it comes to visuals on screen. If he's just making kind of grounded films, like, that's nice, but, you know... It, also, I would just say it's very hard to make a movie. Very and, hard. And in some of the failures here, you can see how hard it is. Yes. Because a lot of the elements are in place. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, it's just miscalibrated. Yep. Mostly because, you know what? I'm going to give Danny DeVito all the benefit of the doubt and say it's other people around him going, well, you can't do that or you can't do this. Well, War of the Roses and Matilda feel like the least compromised. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, they're the most And success. they're the best. Yeah. So well, Dan- Death the Smoochie looks pretty uncompromised, too, I got to say. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Danny DeVito unleashed. Danny, if you're listening, give us a call. We'd love to interview you. I also, I love Danny DeVito. Yeah. Love Danny I wanna DeVito. I want to end with that. Who doesn't? I mean, monsters. You know that there's some people out there who's like, I don't like that little bald man. I don't man. like short men. Yes. <laughs> but you know what? He's 10 men in one body. And again, the penguin. That's all we need to say, right? Amen. Now, do we have any letters? We do have letters as per usual. You can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Jake Tibbs. It's a bit of a long letter, but I'd like to thank you for all the praise, most of it, especially for my book, Radioactive Dream, The Cinema of Albert Pyun. And he asks us, though, when are we going to do John Ford? We'll do them. He says he understands the cinematic vegetables, but you got to eat vegetables every now and then. Well, hey, listen, I love John Ford. I mean, you know what we're going to do when we do John Ford, right? The bad John Ford. Oh, yeah. And there's some bad ones in there. So what What are the bad ones? The Shirley Temple one? Yeah, probably a Shirley Temple one. One of the later ones, mm-hmm. like Seven Women. Oh, Seven Women's pretty good, though. Uh, I mean, any John Ford film we pick, some auteurists will come and be like, no, 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 you don't understand. There's this or this or this or that. Yeah. He's probably got tons of land of pharaohs in him. Yeah. No, I mean, we haven't avoided John Ford because it's vegetables. I think we've avoided him because we got to kind of space out the canon directors. Mm-hmm. And also because it's a massive filmography mm-hmm. that is a little intimidating. He also continues, another episode I'd love to see is one where Justin forces Will to do a deep dive of Albert Pune's Urban Trilogy. Uh, yes, well, you I, know I would the, do it. The Urban Trilogy was that Albert Pune was hired to direct an anthology film in a European country with a bunch of rappers. He gets there and decides, why would I make one movie <laughs> when I can shoot three feature lengths? And by that, I mean a little bit above an hour. And he shot them all simultaneously. So he would get like a hallway, put the camera down, shoot a bunch of scenes for all three movies, and then move on to the next one. I think if we haven't done this, it's probably because Justin doesn't want to do it. I'd love to do it. I mean, You'd the movies to do it? are not good. I don't know if we 25 minutes to talk about these. Patreon? Three yeah, Patreon, definitely. Yeah. I mean, if we watch all three, it probably only come to like total run time because the credits go a long time and the opening ones do too. 75 minutes for all three they're not very long who are who's in them ice tea ice tea snoop dog okay ice cube yeah they're all in it one of them snoop dog is a ghost-like figure that's haunting a bunch of people in a warehouse these all take place in warehouses i should point out i'm always up for an albert pune film and it was one of his early experimentations in digital video and it was also the film that he broke up with his longtime line producer who would then go on to do ryan johnson movies and continues to this day all right and one last thing he would love for us to pontificate about the YouTube film space, particularly the mainstream corner, and how it will affect film discourse moving forward. Are you talking about, like, critics? Like, YouTube critics? Yeah, I think maybe YouTube critics, yeah, and, like, the following they get and things like that. Not really I, I'm, tapped I'm, into yeah. that, yeah. I'm not that active, but of course I see, like, the thumbnails. Mm-hmm. I see, you know, somebody doing the... Home, they're doing Home Alone face in front of, like, Janet Lee in the shower scene. And, yeah. like, first reaction action to watching psycho for the first time i'm sure there's some Who's that are good youtubes ebert and siskel well yeah is would it be red letter media probably i would say yeah, yeah. other than that like do they stay in the limelight long enough to the problem is that like you know 
Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel are so famous because they were everywhere. That's what everyone was watching. So there's that point of connection and that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. It's, you know, niches, people. I mean, what's amazing about some of these is you look at them and they have millions of views. Yes. But I also think they don't usually last that long Mm -hmm. that putting out that much work and being in the public eye and interacting, it burns you out. And like, is it Lindsay Ellis that was around for a while? Do you know her? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I know. And she's completely gone now. Like she just moved off all the platforms. And I I don't know if even her videos are still up. Yeah. So, I mean, it is very like vaporous in the way they exist, but I don't know how we would talk about like, ah, they do a very good job or a bad job. I would be interested in hearing if anybody knows who the really good ones are. Let us know. Mr. Beast. Oh, I (laughs) paid someone to kill me for real. (laughs) Hello, I'm the Nostalgia Critic. I remember (laughs) it so you don't have to. What's the Nostalgia Critic theme song? I know you know it. Well, thank you very much. And now I'm going to sing all the lyrics from his version of The Wall. Wait, did he do a parody version of that? Not only did he do that, he, oh, did, no. a, he did a whole song-by-song song parody version. What? Uh, like a with, whole with, with, album? With lyrics. Yeah, that whole album. Next time you're looking to conceive a child, put that on. All right, so our next letter, moving right on from that, <laughs> is from DHW, and he goes, Hey, Justin and Will, love the podcast, big fan. I'm currently listening to your Shot on VHS episode. Great! And your discussion of the differences between film analog video and digital video brought to mind my recent experience seeing new movies at special screenings in which they were shown on special film prints i'm a longtime chicago resident bleak midwestern city in america fyi uh, i'm familiar with chicago <laughs> yes yeah that's where all those john hughes movies take place that's right? right that's where steve martin and john candy want to go to in trains planes and automobiles and chicago is blessed to have the music box theater which in the past couple of years have shown limited engagements of new movies on film prints i have seen once upon a time in hollywood white noise Bombback, and most recently, The Holdovers, all on film. I've seen The Holdovers again recently on streaming, and I felt as if I could notice a difference. I always feel the colors look richer on celluloid. However, I'm curious what the technical process is for doing this. The Holdovers was probably shot on digital video and then transferred from digital to film. How does that work? I believe I read that some of the similar process has been done to the most recent Robert Pattinson Batman movie where they somehow process digital footage in an analog way to give it a rougher experience. They did do that. I did read about this. Did you know that? I did not that know Matt that. Matt Reeves, the Batman, they shot it digitally, then they transferred it to film, and then they transferred it back, back to, to digital. digital. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not familiar with any of the technical knowledge to describe this better. What do you guys think about these new movies simulating the appearance of film, or even being shown on film despite not being shot on film? Is it empty nostalgia and pastiche? Is it translating an older format for modern audiences? After Tarantino's last movie, will we ever see another new movie shot on film and screened on film? Love the podcast. Always looking forward to it every week. David. I will say that... Christopher Nolan's still making movies, so they're still shooting on film. And I mean, you never know. I mean, it might become an increasingly sort of artisanal format where... Mm-hmm. It like, is. Kodak is making tons of money right now. They're basically the only major film distribution arm, and they delayed their Super 8 camera, a new one, and they just announced they're actually releasing it. It is, I believe, $8,000, which is ridiculous, but they're still doing it. There's still an audience for that. Another big problem is that the actual, like, 
you know, feeding film into a projector and projecting it is becoming lost knowledge. Mm -hmm. So like anytime, for example, when Oppenheimer showed in Toronto yeah. uh, on 70 millimeter, the first day there were like a million technical snafus because they didn't fucking know how to load the print. Well, that, well no, they did know how to load the print. And then management told the person who came and did it. Oh, yeah, we're not paying you to show it. And he's like, all right, well, I'm going then. Like, you're not paying me. Why would I stay? Right. And then there was nobody there to man the project. And that's I fucking see. management's fault. Right. So, but you can see, like, when The Hateful Eight, which The Hateful Eight came out, like, three years after film was obsolete. Yeah. And that had problems everywhere. Now, I should say that we learned only a few days ago, because I was asking somebody in the know, that Toronto still has a very vibrant film projectionist union. Okay. Who, like, do, like, they learn how to do, you know, celluloid. There's still school. Like, George Eastman House teaches that, I believe. Like, if you're going to archival, an exhibition there's still classes i don't think it will ever go away especially that there's so many of them that still exist and people are still producing them i think it's difficult to convince studios to do it unless you're tarantino or nolan i remember once i think it was ty west who shot in the valley of violence and he did it on film and he said something like you need to budget in like five hundred thousand dollars or something like that. i may be getting the number wrong here and if you do that then you can shoot on film I don't think it's a money issue, though. I think it's like studio execs go, why would you shoot on film? That's more difficult. I mean, there are some people like Ryan Johnson or somebody might get They still a, shoot on film uh, when well, they can. Yeah. Well, I like... Oh, I, I don't. Wait, that's not, actually the opposite, because Ryan Johnson, cinematographer, is a big proponent of we can make digital look like film. He's done a lot of tests to do that. But sometimes somebody like Ryan Johnson will take his digital movie and make a print of it so that he can show it at Tarantino's theater, yes. right? And what I'll say is I saw Ridley Scott's Napoleon on 70 millimeter and I thought it looked pretty good. I think it does make a difference when you transfer to film that there is a different textual quality there. Like and the, that's blue, undeniable. the blues and the greens, yeah. even if it's shot on digital, somehow look better. I saw Joker, another one on 70 millimeter, on yeah. 70 millimeter, which was shot digitally. And I swear it looks really good in 70 mil. I actually saw, speaking of new movies, of course, I did my due diligence and I saw Rebel Moon in 70 millimeter and it was slightly fuzzy and it, it looked like an older movie than it was. So like, if there's the option to do that, it is again, a ego kind of like artisanal thing, but I'm happy it still happens. The Holdovers is an interesting example only because like... Alexander Payne wanted the movie to look old from the get-go mm -hmm. and he tries to make it look like film that's a movie when I was watching it that I was like why didn't they just shoot it on film then like if you wanted to imitate film so much it probably cost more digitally to try to <laughs> imitate it and get it like perfect than just shooting on film in the first place but again Probably an executive studio issue. Can you speak to any of the technical issues? No, I don't know exactly the process. I mean, the way that you would do it is the same way you would probably do animation. You just photograph it and then you get it. It's on a print and then that print is probably... I mean, if they're doing it from a pure chemical process, you make a negative and then an inner negative, then you make other copies. You take a magic wand mm -hmm. and you wave it and yeah. then suddenly you have a print. It's, it takes time, not that much time. It's very expensive, but most of the places doing this stuff, they could pay for it if they wanted to. But then again, like young people, we don't know. Maybe they love the look of digital video and film looks weird to them because they did not grow up with it. Yeah, or maybe if they see it only every now and then, they'll like, say, wow, film looks amazing. Why yeah. we, I mean, kind of like how when digital was new, sometimes I would look at it and say, whoa, this is so sharp. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it uh, depends what you're looking for, right? Because like sharpness is something now, the cameras you want to avoid. And if you look at any kind of YouTube tutorial on new cameras that you buy, even the more expensive ones are like, oh yeah, the sharpness is raised lower in the settings because it's like, what do you want on a documentary? You want things to look sharp because they look realistic. But then uh, that also creates an unreality 
reality based on what we're used to seeing in cinema. But saying like, oh, will they think it looks good? No, it looks like shit. Because we just watched a new movie, which is the subject of the Patreon episode this week. Oh, yeah. Our Patreon episode is about the brand new Dolph Lundgren directorial effort, Wanted Man. This gives me an excuse to just talk about Dolph Lundgren for 20 or so minutes. Love the man. Have a lot to say. So I really hope that you give it a listen. But I bring it up because the film looks like crap. And it looks like crap because they're not lighting it. They're just whatever color grade they're giving it. They're pushing everything to you so you can see everything. So it's like mushy and not really present. There's no contrast, which a lot of film companies love to avoid as much as possible. As I recently learned, talking to a director that worked for Asylum that will be appearing on a new Gold Ninja video Blu-ray that like they like everything bright. They don't want any darkness or any kind of directorial evidence or like choices that are made. So Gordon Willis, he ain't painting with darkness anymore if he was still kicking around. Yeah, he's dead. It's in peace. He is in the darkness. So next week, an episode on a subject that's been a long time coming, Jim Jarmusch. Yes, Jim Jarmusch. If we were a more professional podcast, looking for those clicks, we would have done this bad boy in probably the first 20 episodes. Yeah, because you guys there in your Criterion closet, mm-hmm. you know. You're reaching for that. The coffee and cigarettes come out in Criterion? No, is that no. an MGM only one? That is an MGM. But, you know, you're Stranger Than Paradise. You're Dead Man. Oh, I love Dead Man. Those are two we should do. Yep, absolutely. And maybe a third. Why don't we do like a new one? In the classic, like, we do good ones, then you jump and you do a zombie film or something like that. Do you like want that. to do The Dead Don't Die? Have you seen The Dead Don't Die? Yes, I have. I have not seen it. Let's so. do The Dead Don't Die. All right, there we go. How does Jarmusch lose that magic? Is he, like, present very much? Like, I don't hear that many people talk about him compared to, like, 10 years ago. That's a good point. Well, we can well, ponder we, we, that. Yeah, we will do more research, and we will discuss it on next week's episode. But until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. As per usual, I would like to thank some of our new patrons, who include Tommy Scarpinato, Anthony Leon, Mark Catapano, Mark Peterson, Jonah Puskar, Kirian Judge, Zachary Souza, etc., etc., Noah Lenderman Grice, Grant Volkmar, Rain, and Palm Frond. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. Well, listeners to the podcast will know that Justin and I have a screening series at Toronto's Fox Theater. Because we mention it every episode leading up to it. Because we want you to come. We mm. want to keep doing it. And boy, folks, you sure came to the last one. In terrible weather. It was like rain, snow, but you guys came. And thank you so much to everyone listening who came. Oh, uh, man, we met some celebrities. Host of the Drive-In Network. Yeah, Rob Salem. A person that runs the Rio Theater account on Twitter. Oh, yeah. So Toronto Plex. Yes. Toronto Plex, the guy who does all of the lit if you live in toronto and you don't follow toronto plex on twitter and letterbox what are you doing because he posts every day all the movies that are playing in toronto one-off screenings like he looks finds all of them it's like such a useful thing indian cinema all that stuff yeah so so as well as plenty of our you know workaday listeners mm-hmm. you the fans came out picking up that free program we were giving out Probably. buying some gold ninja video yeah. blu-rays and the dragon lives again as we've mentioned before is a 1970s martial arts comedy in which bruce lee goes to hell he fights james bond dracula the godfather the exorcist and he becomes friends with Popeye the Sailor. So this was a film famous for never being available in widescreen, just crummy looking full screen versions, which, ah, yeah, just soak it in, right? It's like you're seeing something you're not supposed to see, but 
That's not the version that we watched. We in the watched, theater. yeah, the American Genre Film Archive and Severin and Severin. Well, Severin is going to be putting it on Blu-ray soon. Yes, they are. And so they did a scan of a print English dubbed. So I don't think it's the one I saw that Grady Hendrix did at one of his Kung Fu things. Unless they matched the audio. The to audio, it. yeah. But let's be honest. The way to watch it is English dub. I don't think it was that print because there was no burnt in subtitles at the bottom. The English dub on it's the Dragon so Lips again. Funny. <laughs> I will never watch it any other way. <laughs> what are some of the lines on it? Oh, I don't remember. I just know that it's like, if we can't count on James Bond to take out Bruce Lee. <laughs> who can we count on? Or it is me, the exorcist. I can't do it. He has a French accent. Or, or after Emmanuel tries to kill <laughs> the emperor of the underworld via vigorous intercourse, he says, her pushy in this plot too it was trying to murder me <laughs> so this is a movie that it has everything that you would want and it is one i do think that if you show it to your friends who want wild movies maybe you, you'll be a little bit trepidatious as it starts as will i looked over as there was a long scene of women in a bath just rubbing their breasts and will was like uh-oh <laughs> well when that was happening yeah there were several kind of soft core interludes in the middle mm. where i kind of thought oh man i i hope, hope i'm the, like there's a child in this audience i know there is i saw him come in i hope i hope the people don't get bored or frustrated at this point but honestly Truly, The Dragon Lives Again is funny from beginning to end. Mm. Intentionally so, I would say. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And when you see it in widescreen. Oh, so good. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that this is a well-made film. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But... Well, actually, actually... is well made? It is, well, it's certainly better when you see it in widescreen. It's a messy film, I would say. It's uh, messy. The mise-en-scene is a little bit sketchy. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the structure, whoa oh boy. But, like, one of my main complaints is this film blows its load too early. Because you see all the cameos in the opening title sequence. That is true. Yeah. But I also will say I was entertained. I was entertained. From like, beginning to end. It, it gets you ready. It's like you're going to see all of these characters. The man with no name. Dracula, The Exorcist. The man with no name, by the way, who they all refer to as Clint Eastwood. <laughs> there, there is a Chinese man dressed as Clint Eastwood from the Sergio Leone movies, mm. and they keep saying, ah, we're going to send Clint Eastwood to kill him. And look, there's Simon Yun in a lot of scenes. From Drunken Master. Not doing much, just being an extra, which led me and Will to ponder, wait, I wonder if those weird mummies in the movie or the skeleton men, there's like a, a Yuo Ping under there or another Jung brother. Actually, Funniest moment in the movie is when Bruce Lee, Bruce Lung playing Bruce Lee, reflects on his womanizing in real life. And, and he's like, oh, Linda, wherever you are, I'm so sorry for cheating on you, <laughs> which got a huge laugh from the audience. I can feel the whole audience united in like, that's an incredibly tasteless thing to put in a movie. No, that's not the only tasteless thing in this movie. But this is the one that wants to entertain. There's a big, long action climax at the end of the film. So fun. And it's like Bruce Lee versus the exorcist and the godfather. And Popeye. Who, who like ripped his, no, no, no. Yeah. Because you think the movie's over. He's defeated the two guys. And then there's new bad guys that show up for another five minute action scene and that's when Popeye comes in and team he up eats with it. the spinach uh, yeah. oh my god <laughs> Uh, so, so good. fun and then it ends and I, like as i was watching i was like i don't remember exactly how does it go out on a high oh does it, does, it? A, does it have a final image does, does it bruce go lee, on a high does bruce lee go i need to go back to my home planet <laughs> <laughs> there's a final like one of the great kind of like maybe not the final but one of the final images ever put in a movie that's like, <laughs> i can't believe they're doing this it's so good uh this is a movie that like we've been singing the praises for it since we started this podcast yeah but i don't feel like it's broken through and i feel like it's right on the cusp of like 
everybody discovering what this is and being like, wow. Well, when Severin puts out that Blu-ray. Yeah. Oh, and man. then it's going to become a troll, too. Like, yeah, the dragon lives again. Everyone's talking about this But one. remember, folks, we were there first. Yeah, we, like, like Ray J, we hit it first. <laughs> but we're, we don't own the film or anything like that. We're just one of its main supporters. Yeah. We'll, we'll do anything Bruce Bloitation related. Please. Yes, please, please. 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 